The only real difference there is that in 63 AD, the temple complex was finished and everything, but really the basic map of Jerusalem in Jesus' day and, and, and what we're looking at or what we're going to look at now is pretty much the same. Uh, there's no big differences. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for our day. Thank you for our evening together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is as deep, deeper than the ocean and the deepest space. But yet, God, it is as friendly as the shallows we can run and play in with no fear. Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at history. Lord, help us to read your word and to understand that your word applies to all of your story throughout history. Help us to be a people that can look at our times, the days and the times that we live in, and discern what is happening in our day and in our time, just as, Lord, you have encouraged your people throughout history from the very beginning. Your people, among all the peoples on the face of the earth, should be a people that can discern the time that they live in. Father, help us learn from history so that we can learn today and discern the times that we live in that you would be glorified through your church. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, I have a lot to cover uh, that I want to go through. We may just hit some highlights, but I want to go back to, to the Scripture. So I want to go back to Matthew 24. And I want to just, I want to read um, a few verses here. Before we dive into our lesson, Matthew 24, let's look at, um, let's go at verse 4. Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended will be betray and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. All right. Um, let's go over to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 21. Let's, let's read Luke's account here. And then we'll come back, probably come back to Matthew. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 8. And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. 
But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. All right. So let's look here real quick at some things that Jesus points out. For instance, in Luke chapter 21. So he begins this and he says, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name. What name would that be? Who, who was Jesus? He was the Christ. So many will come in my name, not saying I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Many will come in my name, proclaiming that they are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the King. Many will come in my name, but don't be deceived. Then he says, the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. The time has drawn near. So when you begin to see these things, when these things begin to happen, know that the time is drawn near. But when you hear of rumors, when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then nations will rise against nations, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilence, fearful sights, and great signs from heaven. Fearful sights and great signs from heaven. So Jesus warned his disciples that these things would take place, and he says, don't be fearful, don't be terrified. These things have to happen. The end is not yet. Let's go back to Matthew 24. So, this is the same account. One written by Matthew, one written by Luke. They both record this warning by Jesus. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. In other words, many are going to come in my name saying I'm the Christ, and a lot of people are going to believe him and follow him. But you don't be that people. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. You'll see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. So he describes the same things. In verse 8, he says, all of these are the beginning of sorrows. Then he talks about the persecution that will come. Uh, We've already talked about this on the timeline. I just wanted to, to link some of this to the account here in Matthew and in Luke. It's also recorded for us in Mark's gospel so when Jesus talks about the end here, uh, what is our, um, well, here in our modern times and in our Western um, culture that we live in, for the last 150 years, this has been largely understood that Jesus is talking about the end of the world like the consummation of all things, like when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. Is there something else Jesus could be talking about here besides the end of the world? Yes, who said yes? Yes. What might that be? Yeah, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70... Yeah. So when he talks about the end, then the end will come. Um, We we should, at the very minimum, not knowing where everyone's eschatology is, but at the very minimum, we should understand that Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, some people will say, yes, that's true, but he's also projecting into the future uh, and the ultimate end. 
And if, if that's where you're at, that's fine. Uh, except don't. The people reading this or the people hearing the words of Jesus. When Jesus spoke these words. Those people. Were being spoken to that generation would not pass until these things came to come come to pass. And I think if we're, we're if we're honest uh, with the Bible, when Jesus is speaking in Matthew 23 and Matthew 24, and he talks about this generation, I think the only really honest way we can understand that is he's talking about the generation that he's actually talking to. The generation. So when he says to the high priest, you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds and they tear their clothes and say, that's it. What more proof do we need? He's a heretic. He's just equated himself with God um, because they understood what that vision meant that Daniel had. And so did Jesus. And Jesus said, I am that vision. I am the fulfillment of that. And he says, you'll see that. You guys will see that happening. And so we need to understand correctly what Jesus is talking about so that we're not reading things into the text that are not there. Um, And so these accounts in the gospel are really important for us because they, they help us understand the history that actually played out and took place. And so we always want to make sure that we're not taking the Bible and making it fit history because the Bible is God's word. And this is what, uh, this is what we very often see when we, we have a major event happen in the world. And then not too long after that, there's a best-selling book about this military conflict or about this leader that rose up. And this book is all about how it fits with the scripture. Well, what people are doing there is they're, they're taking the Bible and they're, they're fitting it into history. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to let the Bible be the foundation and we should understand history based on what the Bible says and not try to squeeze um, the meaning of scripture into our current events. So let's, uh, I'm going to begin today um, by just kind of giving you an, um, a brief overview of who this guy uh, that we, his name is Flavius Josephus. Now that's not his birth name. His birth name was Joseph, son of Matthias or Joseph ben Matthias. Um, we're just going to call him Josephus for the most part, because that's where everybody, that's, that's really who we understand him to be. Um, he was born in 37 AD. He was the son of Matthias. He was of priestly descent and his mother had royal blood. Uh, and so what we understand immediately about Josephus or Joseph ben Matthias is that he was an aristocrat. He was of a privileged class. Um, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but just understanding who he is and why he came to be the person he is. He had, he had means to get an education, a very good education. He was obviously a very intellectual, very smart guy. He considered himself a moderate. He studied all three sects of Judaism, Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes, and decided that he wanted to be a Pharisee. Uh, And so that's what he called himself. Um, He rose to prominence in his country. He was a devout Jew. He loved the Jewish people. He loved the scripture. He loved all things Jewish. Um, He's considered a traitor by many because he defected to the Romans. uh, And we're going to talk about why he did that. And so early on, so remember, um, at the time this is happening, you know, we're we're around 66 A.D. We could back up a few years here Uh, before 66 A.D. Remember what was happening in in uh, in Judea, in Palestine. Uh, It was very uh, there was turmoil. There was conflict. There was lawlessness. 
there was a lot of political intrigue. Nero is the emperor at this time. And um, remember, persecution for the church started with the Romans around 64 when Rome burned and then Agrippa also began to persecute Christians. He was a devout Jew and he, he didn't like the fact that the church was beginning to usurp and, and, and kind of invade into Judaism because there were a lot of Jews who were followers of Jesus. Uh, and so then you have the Apostle Paul making his claims, um, you know, in, in doing his missionary journeys and preaching to the Gentiles. And word is getting back to the Jews in Jerusalem that the Gentiles are Christians and they don't have to keep the law. And it was a big mess all the way around politically, the religious conflicts. So there was lots of conflict, lots of turmoil happening at this time. Now think about the words of Jesus. Think about tribulation, the words tribulation and commotion. This is what they're living in. So this is what the Christians are living in. There is tribulation, there is commotion, there is uncertainty, there's lawlessness, there's all kinds of things happening. Now think about what Jesus told you was going to happen But don't be fearful because this is not the end. This is just the beginning. These things have to happen, Jesus said. And so Josephus, um, he makes a trip to Rome to try to negotiate the release of some priests. So I I told you about this um, in one of the previous lessons, but this group of priests had gone to Rome to complain about the governor there. Uh, because the governor was um, hated by the Jews. Uh, it's not Pontius Pilate. This is after Pilate. Pilate's already long gone. And so there was, this, um, there was this kind of marriage of convenience between the temple authorities, the Sadducees, the people that ran the Sanhedrin and, and controlled the temple, and the Jewish and the Roman authorities. Um, and then you had everybody else. You had the, the, the peasants, the lower class, which were greatly suffering at this time. We'll talk about that too. And so this group of priests went to Rome, to, to, to Nero, to try to get some relief. It's like, you've got to do something. It's horrible over here. And your governors are unjust and they're corrupt and blah, 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 blah. Well, Nero just doesn't care. And he, he, he just incarcerates them. He, he arrests them. And so Josephus, on a diplomatic mission, goes to Rome to appear before Nero to negotiate the release of these priests. Now, this is important because Josephus had not been to Rome. And, and Josephus, his, his um, interaction with Rome and Romans and the empire was in the context of his homeland. And it wasn't a good thing. And nobody there liked the Romans. They all hated the Romans. Well, Josephus goes to Rome and he sees Rome. He sees this spectacular city and it, it captures his imagination. And he realizes that his people are not going to win a war against Rome. And so Josephus ends up becoming a historian and and he writes these histories because one of the things that Josephus wants to do is, is try to educate the Romans and the Greeks about the Jews. And he also wanted to um, do the, the reverse of that, but the Jews really weren't open to that. And that wasn't really his main thrust. His main thrust was, trying to help the Romans and the Greeks understand the Jews. So I'm sure so that there would be a greater level of tolerance and working together, a greater understanding because the Jews were just weird. They were different from everybody else. They didn't have the same religion. They didn't eat the same foods. Uh, They didn't do most of the things that everybody else did. And so the world looked at them as just being really um, just weird. And they were a thorn in a lot of people's flesh because they were uncompromising about their religious beliefs. 
And so anyways, so this is Josephus. He goes and, um, and he tries to um, do this and he, he sees Rome and his perspective begins to change. He comes back to Jerusalem and he tries to talk to the people in power and convince them that, that because everybody is ready for war. So leading up to 66 AD, uh, the, 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 the uh, conditions and the temperament and the environment is we're going to have a war. There's no other way that, that we're going to get rid of the Romans. We're going to have to fight them. Josephus comes back and he says, don't do it. We're not going to win. Let's try to figure out a way to have peace. Well, it didn't work. Uh, and so when war breaks out, he becomes a general and he fights for uh, Israel. He fights for the Jews. He becomes uh, a Jewish general and he is defeated in battle uh, and captured by the Romans. He is specifically captured by Vespasian and Titus. Titus is the son of Vespasian. And Vespasian was the general that Nero put in, in charge to oversee the campaign of the Jewish wars. And so um, he gets captured. Typically, uh, after they got all the information they wanted to get from a commanding general, the Romans would have just crucified him. They would have killed him and made an example out of him. But for some reason, Vespasian did not do that. And in part, and we're going to talk about it, it's an interesting story. So the story is told that upon his capture by the Romans in 67, this happened in 67 AD, Josephus was brought before Vespasian, and he was brought before Titus. And um, when he's brought before Vespasian, Josephus explains to this Roman general in command of all these Roman armies, he explains to him that there is a prophecy and Josephus believed that Vespasian was the guy who was going to fulfill that prophecy. Do you know what prophecy it was? It's the prophecy from Numbers 24, verse 17 through 19. A prophecy that had been around for a long time. In fact, prior to or at the birth of Jesus, that prophecy had been passed down from generation to generation for centuries. And Babylonian wise men who knew this prophecy, who were also astronomers, saw a star and they followed that star because they knew this prophecy. And they knew there would be a king born. So let's, let's read this prophecy. Numbers 24, 17 through 19. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And batter the brow of Moab. And destroy all the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also. His enemies shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Now, we know that prophecy is about Jesus. That star, that scepter that will rise out of Israel out of Jacob, this one that will come. We, we know that that was Jesus. That's why the wise men came, followed the star. They knew the prophecy. But now, Jesus was born. He lived. He was rejected by his nation. They did not believe he was the Messiah. At least those in power did not. Or they would not acknowledge him as so. And so they crucified him. They murdered him instead. And so the fulfillment of that prophecy had already taken place. But Josephus was not a follower of Jesus. He was aware of Jesus, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He was aware of John the Baptist. He was aware of James, the brother of Jesus, and had very high regard for James. In fact, 
Josephus tells us in his history that it is his opinion that God destroyed Jerusalem in the temple because of what the Jews did to James, who was the brother of Jesus. But it wasn't Jesus that Josephus was looking to. And so he was familiar with this prophecy and he meets Vespasian and he tells Vespasian, he said, you're the guy. Let me read this prophecy to you. You're the guy. Remember when that happened before on our timeline of history? When Alexander the Great is marching through and raping and pillaging and destroying everything in his path and he gets to Jerusalem and the priests go out in their white garments and they take the scroll of Daniel and they take it out there and they read to Alexander the Great and they say to him, you are this guy. God has prophesied the rise and fall of these kingdoms and you will rule the world. And Alexander believed them and he spared Jerusalem. Well, now here is Josephus. Maybe Josephus was aware of that. I don't know if Josephus really believed that this would happen or not. But he told Vespasian, you will be the emperor of Rome. Now, Vespasian is not the emperor of Rome right now. He's just a general. Brought out of retirement by Nero. He was put in retirement by Nero because he fell asleep during one of Nero's performances. That's usually a death sentence. But Vespasian was such a decorated uh, general. He had led so many campaigns and was such an asset. Nero just said, go retire. Get out of my, get out of my sight before I kill you. But when this Jewish war came to pass, Nero needed somebody he could count on. So he brought Vespasian out of retirement and he says, go take care of the Jews for me. And that's what Vespasian is doing here. And so Josephus gives him this prophecy and he says, you will become the next emperor of Rome. You will rule the world. You are this guy. And the, the, the thing here was, I don't know, nobody can get into the mind of Josephus, but supposedly this does not specifically say that this, this king, this one who would rise up, had to be a Jew. Though it does say out of Jacob. But they took that more of being a geographical than an, uh, an ethnic thing. And so where is Vespasian when... When he's hearing this prophecy, where's Vespasian when he's going through the, the, the land of God's people? He's, he's in Jacob. He's in Judea. He's there. And so Josephus convinces him. Vespasian hears what Josephus has to say and found it very interesting and ended up keeping Josephus alive. He didn't kill him. He just detained him. He put him... He put him in a very comfortable prison, you might say. He just said, okay, you, you, you're not going anywhere. You're just going to stay here where I can watch you, and then we'll see what happens. Now, it's not that Vespasian couldn't see himself becoming emperor. He was of the right lineage. He had the right, he had the right pedigree to become an emperor. He had the military might to become an emperor. He had the love of his men and the love of very many people in the empire so that he could become emperor. But he was not the emperor. There was a psychopath that was ruling Rome at that point in time. And Nero wasn't always a psychopath. Nero was actually quite a... a, He was a very good emperor for many years. It was after he murdered his mother that he kind of went off the deep end and just literally became like a psychopath. I'm not saying he wasn't a sinner. He was a very great sinner, but, uh, but he wasn't. He was actually loved by his people because he helped the poor and he did a lot of those things. But by the time this is happening, he's, he's in psychopath mode. But there were other things happening at that time, other events that Vespasian was aware of that caused him to pause before he killed Josephus. Now, you got to remember, guys back then, the, the world back then, signs and things that happened in the heaven were not always fully understood. 
And so um, there were things that happened and they were omens and they believed these omens were were either omens for good or omens, you know, for for ill. Uh, and, and we've seen this with all of these guys. Alexander the Great, he was all into this. And every time he'd do a military campaign, he had to do all of his things to find out what the omens were. I guess they were all pretty good because he conquered the world. Um, so until he died. So there were some things going on. So, for instance, there was already a civil war taking place in the Roman Empire. So Gaul, do you guys know where Gaul is? Geography test. France, that's right. France was ancient day Gaul. And Hispania, you can probably guess that pretty easy, that's Spain. So France, Spain and France was part of the Roman Empire. Well, there was a civil war. So these guys decided that they were going to appoint their own emperor, and they didn't want Nero to be that, and so they were going to take over. So civil war is taking place. Besides that, there was another omen that had been observed in the heavens that caused Vespasian to pause. It was a comet that resembled a sword. And so this comet, you know, remember, you know how comets are. They just kind of hang in the sky for a long time until they're gone. And so every night, this comet would be in the sky, and it looked like a sword. And so, depending on who you were, you took that as an omen for good or for bad. Well, some of the Jews who wanted to overthrow the Romans took that as a sign from God that it was time to go to war with the Romans, and God was giving them the sword to defeat their oppressors. Vespasian saw that same comet and he realized with the civil war going on in the empire that that omen could have significance for him because he's leading an army to overthrow, uh, you know, this Jewish war. But he has great power and great influence. And so couple that with Josephus telling him, you're the guy, here's the prophecy. And Vespasian takes all of this into consideration. And so he holds on to Josephus and he doesn't kill him. And so during this time when he's holding Josephus prisoner, for instance, or or for all practical purposes, the son of Vespasian, whose name is Titus, was the same age as Josephus. Josephus was a very... um, he, he was a very educated man. He was a very, uh, you know, well-read. So Titus and Josephus became friends. They were the same age. Um, I'm sure that probably Vespasian told Titus to keep an eye on this guy. We want to keep him around to see if what he says comes to pass. And so Josephus actually becomes very friendly. In fact, Uh, Josephus, Flavius Josephus, that is the name. That's the name. That's Vespasian's family name. Josephus takes the family name of Vespasian when he becomes a Roman citizen because he had built that kind of relationship with Vespasian and Titus. So as predicted by Josephus, Vespasian did become emperor. And as you can imagine, this gave uh, Josephus great sway with the emperor and his new military commander, his son, Titus. And so Vespasian's back in Rome, but when when the military campaign's going on, we we haven't talked about this yet, but we'll get there. Um, Josephus is with Titus while the war is going on, and so... When we uh, next week, when we look at the siege of Jerusalem, we're going to see that Josephus is literally riding around the walls of of Jerusalem, trying to get the Jews to to surrender to no avail. I wanted to have my phone there because I can't see a clock. There's not a clock. Did there used to be a clock back there? Because four hours o'clock back there. <laughs> Anyways.
Yeah. Y'all are going to feel like that by the time this lesson's over with. <laughs> All right. So um, when Josephus. So now Vespasian becomes emperor and uh, the, the Jewish war is taking place. Josephus becomes a historian. So Josephus takes it upon himself. Remember, he wants to help the Romans and the Greeks learn about the Jews. So he begins to write. Um, he's writing. So while the war is going on, while the siege of Jerusalem is going on, Josephus is literally there writing. So when you read the works of Josephus and you read the Jewish wars, you are reading the eyewitness account of Josephus as he watches that war and that battle take place. Those are, those are eyewitness accounts that he's writing concerning the Jewish war, and in particular, the siege of Jerusalem. He was there with the Romans, watching it, recording everything that he saw. Uh, and talking to Jews who were the few that were able to, to, to escape after the siege began. Not, not many did. Uh, most of them got out before. Uh, he wrote the Jewish War. He wrote Jewish Antiquities. Uh, he wrote an autobiography. He wrote an apology of Judaism called Against the Greeks. Um, and then, as a Roman citizen, he took the name Flavius Josephus. He died, uh, he lived to be uh, over a little, few years, over 60 years old. So I think about that. I'm 62. I'm 62. Josephus probably died about my age, maybe even before. He was at least 60. He was born in 37. He died somewhere around 100. It's amazing to me how much people accomplished. They didn't, a lot of people didn't live long lives. Some of them did, but, you know, he would have been considered an old man in his day. Today, we wouldn't consider him an old man. I mean, some of you might, uh, but 60's not, you know, we say that's not old. It is to some of you. But when you get 60, you're, you're going to think 60's not that old. 60's not old. Am I right, John? Yeah. All right, so let's talk about some of the... So this is the guy who recorded much of our history, much of what we know about this war... Much of what we know about, really almost everything we know that happened at the siege of Jerusalem comes from Josephus because he was an eyewitness. So let's go back to 66 AD prior to the war and let's talk about some of the causes of this war. Um, in 66 AD, Nero decided he needed more money. And he needed more money from, the, from everybody, but in particular, he tells his governor there, uh, whose name was Gassius Florus, and Gassius Florus was hated by the Jews. This is the guy that the Jews, the priest went to complain about when they got captured. They were complaining about this guy before he became governor. Now he's the governor. And Nero is saying, I need more money. Go get it from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, why would Nero send his governor to get money from the temple in Jerusalem? Why would he go to a temple? Would it be like saying, go to the church and get some money? How much money do we keep around here? We don't keep any money around here. Why would he go to a temple? Well, not only that. But the temple was also a bank. There was a lot of money in the temple. So they didn't have banks back then. They didn't exist. Nobody knew what a bank was. If you said, hey, do you have any money in the bank? They're, they're, they're going to think you're talking about that uh, dirt wall down by the river, the river bank. And by the way, that's where our word bank comes from. That's another point in history. We've we got a few centuries to go before we get there. But... Um, Temples were places of security. This is why people would rob temples. This is why temple robbing was, was a death penalty because this is where people would keep their money. And so if you were a wealthy aristocrat uh, 
or if you are just a person of means, you didn't have a good place to keep your money. There were places they kept it in the temple because it operated 24 hours a day. There were people there. Uh, it was safe and secure because no one in their right mind is going to go rob a temple. Well, Nero wasn't in his right mind. So he sends his governor. He says, you go get me some money. I need some gold. And so when uh, when Florus comes to uh, Jerusalem and asks for money, the Jews laughed at him. And some of some of the Jews actually thought it was so ridiculous and so funny because they had already been taxed to death. It's like we have nothing left to give you. Uh, They passed a hat around and made fun of the governor. And the governor didn't find that funny. And so he commanded that his his, uh, soldiers go and find those guys and crucify them, punish them and make an example of them. No one could find them. So he says, well, if you can't find them, just get anybody. So they just started picking random people. If you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, that was a bad day. And so they just started taking people and they just crucified them because they made fun of the governor. And he went ahead and got all the money he could get out of the temple and, and robbed it basically uh, for Nero. Well, this created, as you can imagine, um, an outrage in Jerusalem. Um, but this was just kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Because what, really, what was really the problem uh, in Jerusalem, the, the biggest problem was Roman taxation. So the Romans had taxed the Jews to such an extreme point that you, you could say there was not a middle class anymore. You had the peasantry and you had the aristocrats. And, and so the people in power, the people with wealth and means, knew how to make the deals. And so this was the corruption that was taking place in Jerusalem. But the people that didn't have wealth and the people that didn't have means, they were expected to pay the taxes. And if you didn't pay the taxes, you, you suffered. And so, you know, first they would have to, to mortgage their homes to get money to pay the Roman government. And when they couldn't mortgage their home anymore, then they'd have to sell their land to get money to pay the Roman government. Well, you can imagine how many decades can you do that before you run out of people who have things. And so this, this was the atmosphere in Jerusalem in 66 A.D., there was what was called the peasantry, the, the, the working class. Now, remember what happened in 63 A.D.? In 63 A.D., the temple renovation was finished. It had been going on for decades. And they employed, they employed uh, probably 20,000 people or more. Artisans and workers who worked. For years on the temple. Well, when the renovation was over, all those jobs disappeared. There was no more work. And so in 66 AD, you've got, you've got, you know, 10 to 20,000 people who are jobless, who worked and earned a really good living for a long time. And now they don't have any work. And the Romans are wanting more money. And so now they don't have a job to help pay their taxes, but the Romans don't care. And so it was this impoverishment of the Jewish peasantry that really was the cause of the war. That crucifying random people on the street because the governor was upset was just kind of the thing that snapped. Everybody snapped at that point. Not only that, but that comet thing, that wasn't the only comet. There had been a series of comets and things. There was, there was one in like 64 and there was this one now. And so all of these they thought were omens. And one side read it one way and the other side read it the other way. Well, the Jews with all of these things happening 
were grasping at straws because they didn't know what else to do. They were desperate and, and they felt like war with Rome was the only answer that they had left. So if we think about this, there was Roman taxation, there was Roman brutality, and they were both to the extreme. There was Roman and Jewish corruption. So this is not just a war. This Jewish war is not just a war against Rome. It is also a class struggle. Because the people, the temple authorities, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the priesthood, the, arist- the aristocracy, they had made sweetheart deals with the Romans. And for decades, they were able to, to appease the Jewish peasantry. And that, that temple renovation was a huge part of that. I mean, they, they were pouring lots of money into that renovation, and it was keeping people employed. And when that ran out and increased taxation kept going, there was no there was no way to appease the people any longer. And so there, the people recognized not just Roman corruption, but they recognized Jewish corruption. And we're going to see when we get into the siege of Jerusalem that it wasn't just Jews fighting Rome, Romans. It was Jews fighting each other. In fact, um, Vespasian just said, well, hold on, guys. They may do the job for us. We'll just let them kill each other, and then we won't, we won't have a war to fight. That's literally how bad it was with the Jews. So you have Roman taxation, Roman brutality, Roman and Jewish corruption. You have decreasing opportunity. You have increasing poverty. You have increasing desperation. It doesn't sound much different than America in the 21st century, does it? In a lot of ways. How high can my property taxes go? There was an increasing belief that war was the only answer. And with these omens like the comets, these signs in the heaven that Jesus said would take place, with, with all of these things that were happening, there was the illusion that victory was granted and that God would defeat the Romans at the hands of these Jewish rebels and these Jewish authorities who had, in fact, murdered the Son of God. Talk about a spirit of delusion. God allowed a spirit of delusion to come upon this nation to bring about its destruction. And that's exactly what Jesus prophesies in, uh, prophesied in Matthew 24. Okay, any, any thoughts or any questions to that point? So we don't have a war yet, but it's fixing to take off. All right. So right around this, this thing happening where... Uh, the governor is just picking random people to crucify because he's mad. It's people making fun of him because there was no First Amendment in, in back then. There was no free speech. Uh, there was the speech they allowed you to speak, and if they didn't like it, they would do things like crucify you on a whim. So what happened is those Jewish authorities that had for many decades since Rome came into power, those Jewish authorities who were able to kind of keep things under control by paying off this person, paying off that person, we need some more money for this temple renovation to keep these people working. I mean, all of that kind of house of cards fell down and those authorities lost control of the populace. And while those envoys were on their way to negotiate with Nero, so they're sending envoys to Nero to negotiate because everybody sees what's getting ready to happen. And there were Jewish, um, there were people in, in, um, in Jerusalem 
who understood, like Josephus did, that if we go to war with the Romans, this is not going to be a good thing for us. And, and they recognized that they had much to lose, and so they were trying to negotiate. So while they're sending uh, negotiators to Rome to talk to Nero, the populace, who is out of control, annihilates a Roman garrison. They just, they just annihilate them. They kill them all. And that pretty much sealed the deal. When they annihilated that Roman garrison, that, that was the end. There was no more negotiation. So now the Romans have to come and they have to get this thing under control. In August of 66 A.D., a man by the name of Menahem raided the fortress called Masada. It was a fortress. Herod had it built. It was a fortress. It was very well stocked with weapons. This guy was a zealot. He was a rebel. He raided Masada and they got all the weapons out of Masada to arm all of their rebels to fight the Romans. So now we have a well-armed resistance. This guy was also related to other his father, his grandfather had led uh, rebellions against Rome and uh, many of his family in those rebellions against Rome had been crucified by Rome. And so this guy came from a long line of, of uh, rebels. So he gets his stuff and he basically proclaims himself to be the king of the Jews. He's got his weapons, he's got his army he proclaims himself to be king of the Jews. His, his uh, soldiers were called Sicarians or dagger men. Uh, if you guys have ever watched The Chosen, anybody ever watched The Chosen? So on The Chosen, remember um, Judas, the zealot? He, that's, he had a dagger. That, that was what they carried. He was, that's what that came, comes from. These, those dagger men were, were real guys. They were a real group who fought the Romans until they were all defeated um, in 74. We'll talk about that later on too. And so this guy uh, proclaims himself king of the Jews, marches into Jerusalem, and he executes the high priest. And then when he goes to the temple, the followers of the high priest and the family of the high priest, they lynch this guy. You see what's happening? I mean, you've got these factions among the Jews that literally hate each other. They're not negotiating. They're, they're killing each other. What do we do with the, the high priest who's not really the high priest? who's corrupt, we're going to kill him is what we're going to do. We're not going to put him on trial. We're not going to talk to him. We're going to ride in Jerusalem and we're going to kill him. And that's what he did. And then in retribution, they killed him. September 66, the Romans in Jerusalem. So by this time, these guys are, they take control of Jerusalem. So you have these armed rebels that are controlling Jerusalem and, and they're, they're, they're in various places. So you got one sect on the Temple Mount where the temple is. You got other sects in other areas and everybody's got their own area that they're defending. The only common enemy they have are the Romans, but they're more focused on each other at this point. Well, the Romans, they're stationed in Jerusalem, had been under siege by all of these Jews. They surrendered and upon their surrender the Jews lynched every one of the Roman soldiers. Um, so we've, we've got a garrison that's been annihilated. We've got another one that's surrendered. The rest of them, they lynched. And then after, um, after this, word always gets back to Rome. They send the 12th legion. So the 12th legion is sent from Syria to go to Jerusalem and put this thing down. And so they march and they, they come to Jerusalem in November of 66. 
They win some battles along the way. They, they secure some strategic cities. But in November of 66, the commander of the 12th Legion, now a legion is 5,600 infantry troops and 200 mounted cavalry. That's a legion. And so they have this legion, but this legion is also reinforced from three other units. Three other legions send reinforcements. So it's the 12th legion, a full legion, partials of three other legions, and uh, auxiliary troops and foreign allies. And they get to Jerusalem and they realize that they um, don't have enough men to take the city. So they start back to Syria because they can't stay there. So on their way back to Syria, they're attacked by zealots, these rebels, led by Eliezer, the son of Simon. And they defeated the 12th legion. And they got the standard of the legion. That's like, that's like a big no-no. So it's, it's one thing to be defeated, a Roman legion to be defeated. And so their commander would have chastised them greatly, anyone that survived. But when you go back and you say, not only did we lose the battle, but they got our standard. They got the standard for the legion. That was um, a disgrace for the Romans the Jews took that, again, as a sign from God. That God was actually going to overthrow the Romans through their rebellion. And there's other histories that are written where uh, there were Jews, some of them just would not believe that they could lose. They cannot lose. It didn't matter how overwhelming the odds looked. They could not lose because God was with them. And these little victories, these things that happen, their ability to take Jerusalem, their ability to defeat the 12th legion and take the, the standard, the comets, all of these things they put together and they said, we, we, we're golden, we're going to win this. We cannot lose. We cannot lose. Well, unfortunately, I've lost all the time I have for tonight. So, uh, we'll pick up there and uh, we'll go from there and we'll, uh, we'll launch into the outbreak of war. And um, I'm sorry, uh, I just told you a little incorrect information. When they sent the 12th Legion, they just sent the Legion. It's going to be, it's going to be later when, tight, when uh, Vespasian comes back. Uh, he's going to bring uh, more troops with him. But anyways, all right, any questions there? We're in uh, November of 66 AD, and the 12th Legion has just been defeated by Jewish rebels. And the Jewish rebels are on cloud nine thinking they can't be stopped now. Um, and so we'll pick it up there. By the way, at this point, now what did Jesus say? Let's go back to what Jesus said. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be uh, wars and rumors of wars. So remember, we don't have instant uh, communication. It took a little bit of time and so... Wars and rumors of wars. This is what's happening here. So you can imagine people in other parts of uh, the land who are Christians, who know the words that Jesus uttered to his disciples because those words had been passed down. So tradition tells us that it was, it was around this time when the zealots come in and they murder the high priest, they kill all the Romans, they lynch them all, and they take control of the city. Tradition tells us this is when Jewish Christians began to flee Jerusalem because they, they 
they knew what Jesus said. They heeded the words of Jesus and they saw these things from the comets in the heavens to the wars and rumors of wars to all of this as the sign that Jesus said would happen. It must happen, but the end is not yet. And then we read this last time, you know, where Jesus says, pray it's not on the Sabbath. Pray you're not pregnant. Uh, as soon as these things you see these things go. Don't even go back and get your coat. Just get out of town. And we're going to see as we go through this siege of Jerusalem how, how true those words of Jesus were because the people that did not choose to leave when they could were not able to leave later on. And um, it was horrible, horrible, horrible. All right, any, any questions?